Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ahí va a llegar el gol del Arsenal Ophil. Marca Mesut Ophil. is Arscast Extra. Hello and welcome to another Arscast Extra, as always with James from Gunner Blog, who is now fit and available again after his short mid-season break. How are you this morning? I'm well. I'm well. I'm back. It feels odd. I feel like I've not been on the podcast for ages. I, I know Tyre yeah. ably filled in, but we had Christmas as well. I have had a proper winter break. You really have. I was just thinking that today, this morning, I was going... It actually feels like ages since we since we talked on the podcast. Mm. So mm. there you go. And I I missed uh, you know of course talking about the the Manchester United game, the mm. thrilling victory that was. But don't worry, I am back for the real good stuff. The one all draw at Crystal Palace. Yes, thank you for putting things back on track. Yeah, there were a lot of people <laughs> upset that we didn't have a goodly morning after the Manchester United game. But that's you know the podcast schedule, the way it works, and the Christmas period and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, people still got a podcast. You know, so um, look, yeah. we're here. We're here. And we did have goodly mornings, just independently of each other. Yes, true, true. Um, so, yeah, you're right. A 1-1 uh, draw with Crystal Palace is on the agenda for uh, this morning's discussion. Can I ask you very quickly, um, yeah. were you uh, were you hopeful or optimistic that we were going to go into this game and, and take three points? Because for me, you know, we, we've looked at the... Uh, the team over the last few months and it's been difficult and uh, the United and Chelsea games were not ones you could really go into with a huge amount of confidence um, because of the stature of the clubs and the, the traditional rivalries and all that kind of stuff but it was the first game I think for me that I felt that we could and probably should take all three points from for a yeah, while I, th- I mean I you know yeah, yeah, I think I, I felt similarly. I was unusually confident, and that in itself was quite a, a strange feeling. This when season. will we ever learn, eh? <laughs> I know. And sort of almost more so when I saw the starting lineup, because I had been really in two minds before the game thinking, you know, will he go for that attacking four of Quartet, of Ozil, Pepe, Aubameyang, Lacazette, or will he go for maybe Reese Nelson, a, a slightly more mm. conservative choice, someone who's a bit more positionally disciplined? Um, but he did go for it you know he he didn't do the what Emery might have done he he played a team that was on the front foot and I mean if I was confident before the game I was even more confident after about 20 minutes or so because Arsenal did start this game in really fine form 
Yes, I think it was um, it was a sign that we are learning to control games and control possession. I was very mm-hmm. surprised, actually, I have to say, by Palace and by how standoffish they were. To be honest, mm. I, I thought there would be a bit more, a bit more fight, a bit more aggression. You know, particularly at home, and given that they had this big injury list and and all those kind of problems, yeah. I thought they would just be on it from the start. And maybe they were a little bit inhibited by by all the problems that they had. Um, I, I was sort of worried a little bit in that opening half an hour, thirty five minutes, though, that we didn't quite make enough of of the possession of the domination of the territory and 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 uh you know the the control that we had over the game because we've seen it in the past where you know we've done that we've not maybe taken chances or made enough chances and it's come back to haunt us as it, you know as turned out to be the case but uh it was a very promising start a very bright start and and um you know you can see the arteta influence in how the team are are using the ball you can, yeah. I mean, it was interesting in that first period, you know, David Luiz and Granit Xhaka were both really at the base of the team when we had possession. And Luiz in particular was kind of the, the key playmaker. I think mm. half his touches of the ball in the whole game came in the first 20 minutes or so. And uh, yeah, he was, you know, picking out passes from deep. And, you know, we were going quite direct at times, quite long. It was almost like... the. I mean, the manner in which we scored the first goal, it's sort of like pinball. You fire the ball up and it sort of pings around at the top and then we end up in the penalty box. And that's what we were trying to do. But I think you're right. We didn't make enough of it. And we didn't have... It was quite a a game that was quite low on shots generally. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of actual clear-cut chances, we didn't produce a huge amount... Uh, I mean, neither in that period where we were on top or in the rest of the game, really. Yeah, it's a strange one because it was uh, Arsenal came out on top in terms of shots seven to six, but mm-hmm. that's really uh, quite low, you know, considering some of the shot counts that we've seen in Arsenal games this season. I suppose the the positive from that is the fact that we restricted Crystal Palace to just six shots. The yeah. negative is that we only had seven ourselves, um, yeah. you know, and you would expect that a bit more. There was a, an amazing stat. Um, I'm just looking it up here um, on the. Uh, uh, what's the app called? God. StatZone. StatZone app, yeah, here on my iPad. And David Louise, um, in terms of passes, had, am I right here, 13 passes in the attacking third. Yeah, he, he led the game, I Unbelievable believe. Unbelievable, from, from centre-half. And you're right, you know, it was obviously a tactic to, to get the ball over the top and down that left channel, um, whether it was to Kolasinac or Aubameyang, there was obviously a lot of space down there, something the Palace sorted out a bit, a bit later in the game. But, um, you know, this idea that we could move the ball quickly and move the ball um, long, you know, people might think that's not really the way Arteta wants his teams to play. But if there's a long ball there and you've got somebody with the capability of, of David Luiz, who who really who really can land the ball on a sixpence when he feels like it, uh, you know, we got a lot of joy down there. We did, we did, and you know, Kalasnach was pushing on into that area. We had that sort of five players almost evenly spaced across there across their defensive line and I, and I, re- I really thought we could get them because they had a lot of problems particularly at full back you mm. know Kelly's playing at right back but you know he's often more comfortable in the centre at left back they have real problems and, and Reader Ward who played there I mean Hodgson said in his post-match press conference that 
a few weeks ago, Riedewald said to him, I don't think I can play fullback. He ended up being one of their better players on the day. But yeah. we probably didn't do enough to sort of to test that vulnerability. I remember there were a couple of crosses that came in from the left-hand side from Kolasinac where Pepe maybe could have put a bit more pressure on the on the left-back, you know, mm. just put... He, he sort of stood off him and let him clear it. And he looked a little bit nervy in those first 10 minutes or so. And I think if we'd just been a bit more aggressive, maybe, uh, we could have made more of our dominance because, you know, it was a spell of, of real control in the match that yeah. we didn't capitalise sufficiently upon. Yeah. So the goal came, you know, I just sort of commented on the live blog. I was going, you know, we a lot of the ball, but we're being uh, very passive. You know, there's not enough... Yeah penetration if you like and then um, the goal came about uh, It's I was watching it again I think it's Kuyate in midfield who just sort of basically turns his back on the play and runs towards his own goal and steps off it allows Luis to, to move forward into that space into the centre circle in the opposition half Ozil comes nicely for the ball lays it off to Lacazette Lacazette it's a really good pass through to Aubameyang the run the control the finish really good a very nicely worked goal Really nicely worked. And that is a bit of a hallmark of Arteta's early Arsenal teams. Uh, you know, you see them doing it in the warm-up. They form kind of a little square where Lacazette and Ozil just drop deep into that sort of half space and sort of play off each other. And they're both capable of doing it. And they do it really effectively in this instance. And Aubameyang freed up from the left wing, makes that run inside. Mm. I, I think that was a really lovely goal. I mean, you know, that went in and I was like, wow, that's... That's a proper team goal. It shows a bit of cohesion, some of those automatisms in place. We haven't seen too much of that sort of goal from Arsenal this year. Mm. There was the point where I think Arsenal should have really um, turned the screw in, mm. in terms of putting pressure on the opposition. It's um, I don't know if it's something that all teams face, but certainly when I look at Arsenal and looked at Arsenal over the years, there's this sort of sense that when we score a goal, we kind of rest on it a little bit. And, um, mm. you know, if you if you try and push on a bit or try and, uh, and build on that goal, um, maybe you put the game out of reach uh, before the half an hour mark. But, you know, we couldn't manage to do that. There was plenty of possession again, but not much in the way of uh, chances. And, you know, by the half hour mark, the game had started to get a little bit uh, scrappy. And Palace mm-hmm. worked their way back into it, not in a particularly threatening way, but but certainly they started pushing higher up the pitch. They pressed us a little bit higher. We found it harder to get out. There was less uh, cohesion to our passing, some long balls which didn't find their target. You know, so I think, you know, Arteta, we'll speak about the goal, and he said he was very upset about the goal that we conceded, and I can understand exactly why that's the case. But I think on a, a re-watching of the game, he is going to be more unhappy with the opening half an hour than he will be with with that goal. Because that goal, you can say, okay, look, there are things we could have done and should have done differently there to prevent that. But that half an hour where we were on top, when we were dominating, when Palace, you know, really couldn't get near the ball, they didn't have, um, they didn't have any answer to our possession or control. I think he'll look back on that and think we should have done more with that that opening half an hour, with that dominance. Uh, we we should at least have have turned that into more chances, if not goals. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think Palace slightly got wise to what we were doing as well. You know, they they didn't allow Louise and Shaka as much time deep as they had had. You know, they were closing them down better. Uh, also, 
the crowd became a factor in the game, which they hadn't been. I mean, Selhurst Park has one of the the better, more partisan atmospheres in the Premier League, but Arsenal had really quietened that down with all that early possession. But a few incidents of officiating and, you know, Lucas Torreira, I think, kicking a, a drop ball away when he wasn't entitled to necessarily. The crowd suddenly got behind Palace as well and that sort of stirred up the atmosphere. And, mm. uh, you know, it's always difficult to pin down to what extent that that influences proceedings, but it, it did slightly change the dynamic. And Arsenal just, from about half an hour, I mean, it's it's, it's been a, a characteristic, hasn't yeah, it? Even yeah. amidst all the positivity of Arteta's... Uh, early rain sustaining our good spells is a problem at the moment yeah I don't think that's necessarily a huge issue in itself because uh, you know that happens with games there's an ebb and flow yeah, sure. in terms of possession and, and domination and you know you, you, you see it time and time again where a team is on top and then all of a sudden something happens and, and the tide turns that that in itself is not necessarily a problem I think where where we need to improve is making more of those periods when we're on top because you think of the mm. Chelsea game you know that first half maybe we should have done more in the Chelsea mm. game uh, you know we we uh, we beat Manchester United um but again there were there were moments you know the second half against United for example you know they were much more uh, on top without being overly threatening or, or dangerous so i think it's about it's about um trying to be a bit more clinical when we have this edge, when we do have this um, advantage. Uh, the other team are, are trying to work their way back into a game. It's about doing more with it, and that might speak to um, you know our, our, our goal-scoring issues, which I think are, are something we're going to have to discuss. Um, yeah. we, we don't really score enough goals. We don't have enough goal scorers, and I'm not sure we're quite creating enough chances I don't think it's a massive, massive problem because there's something else I want to just touch on um, as we discuss this uh, a bit later is is the sort of overall defensive improvement. So it's it's sort of offset a little bit there, but mm. the the lack of of chances and shots and and pressure that we're putting on in these periods of the game where we're on top, I think that's I think that's the big problem. Yeah, and I think if you think about you know the great Arsenal teams in, in recent times, I mean, the Invincibles, it's not like they necessarily dominated and controlled and toyed with teams for 90 minutes. Mm. You know, they would often have games won in the first 20 minutes. They would come out the blocks flying yeah. uh, and get two goals up or three goals up and then it's game over. I mean, look at Manchester City yesterday. They went to Villa Park. I think they were 3-0 up after about 15 minutes uh, and then you've killed the game. And, you know, when you are dominant you need to do more with mm. it i think you're right and it's interesting because it's not like it's not like we didn't have attacking players on the pitch you know we had yeah Ozil, lacazette pepe Aubameyang. you know we had players with creativity with goal scoring ability but we weren't really fashioning those chances so i don't think you can blame it on you know i, I think when Emery was at the helm, we could look at the selection and say it's conservative, but I don't think you could make that point at Palace. No, I don't think so. I don't think it's about the selection. I don't think it's necessarily even about the approach. I think it's about what these players are, are putting together mm. on the pitch. Um, right. You know, and, and look, I'm not being critical here. I think we're very, very much a work in progress. There are things that Arteta has done which have obviously improved us. There are other things which are going to take a bit more time to get right. Mm. You know, and, and what's that? Maybe the third time, second or third time, the 
Lacazette, Aubameyang and Pepe have started together in the Premier League. You know, they really sure. haven't done that a great deal. I think Ozil, who has been uh, improved under Arteta, had one of those games which kind of passes him by. I know he was involved in the goal, but he, he never really got um, got on top of it. And I think in in... In a game like this, where we're so dominant in the early stages, where it's kind of set up for him, I just think he could probably produce a a bit more. I don't know if it's just an off day, uh, you know, but he's had quite a few of those. So I just think it's a shame that when we have that control over a game, a player like Ozil, who should thrive in that situation, isn't quite able to, uh, to produce what we would like him to. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair point. I mean, I think, you know, the funny thing about Ozil is there were things about his game that were better than usual. I thought that he was, you know, he showed quite a lot of physical intensity and he worked hard and, you know, that, that's that been critiqued at times mm-hmm. this season and last. But yeah, it's funny, he didn't really do the things you would maybe more naturally associate with him. But I think your point about this front four not having had a huge amount of time playing together and they won't yet, yeah much more of it with Aubameyang's suspension for a little while at least Mm. he's a good one I mean I think Dan Critchlow it was on Twitter pointed out that I think this was the first time this season Arsenal have named the same 11 in consecutive Premier League games right Uh, which is you know we're in January now so that shows you how how much we've struggled for consistency and how much those connections maybe do need to be developed still. Mm. Okay, so just before halftime, there was a, a problem um, with Lucas Torreira. Yeah. Uh, he seemed to pick up an injury. I suspect it came about when Zaha pushed Pepe while he was in the air into Torreira and both Arsenal men ended up on the deck. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suspect that's where the injury came from. Uh, I, I really dislike that foul you know I'm all for a little bit of a cynical foul here and there and and uh, you know there's another one that we'll we'll talk about in a while obviously with the red card not that that was a cynical foul I think it was accidental but just fouls in general but but I think that sort of foul is one which really needs to be punished um more strongly than it is at the moment because it's not being uh punished as a matter of course um this idea that you can push a player while he's off his feet. You know, the, the risk of injury is really, really strong. Really strong. We've seen it with Matthew Debushi. I remember Alexis getting pushed into a uh, a TV pit. Camera uh, dugout. Yeah, yeah, against Norwich a couple of years ago. There were there was one on Koscielny last year, if I remember correctly. And it's it's you know the the perpetrator of the foul is always like what? It's just you know a little bit of a push. But but when a guy is in the air, you don't know how he's going to land. You don't know where he's going to land. Um, you know, I'm not saying Zaha is the world's dirtiest player or anything like that. But but just. As a matter of course, I think it's something that a uh, referees need to look out for, and I think it's definitely something that, with the introduction of VAR, which is going nowhere, unfortunately, it's something that the uh, the the TV officials or the the uh, the video assistant uh, referees need to look at and punish with a minimum of a, a yellow card. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's obviously very cynical uh, and it's very dangerous, as we've seen, you know, as Arsenal fans several times. So, yeah, I I think that is something they could pick up upon. And I think the loss of Torreira, it really hurt Arsenal, actually. You know, I saw Gunduzi warming up at half-time and uh, I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. You know, who's he coming on for? I wondered if maybe an attacker was being sacrificed and mm. was going to try and bolster the midfield. And when I was sort of counting the players out one by one, 
thinking, okay, well, he's out there, Shaka's out there. No, it's Torreira wasn't there. I was like, my heart did sink slightly because it's not to say that Gunduzi was bad when he came on, but I just think Torreira's brought a lot of structure to our team since Arteta came in and since his role was essentially revised. And uh, I think we missed him both for what he does with the ball and without it. Yes, I agree. I, You know, I, I, like you, I don't think Enduzi was bad at all. I thought there was uh, stuff to his game which was really quite good, particularly late on when we were down to 10 men. He showed some mm. good defensive acuity. Yeah. You know, he held the ball up, he ran with it, he won us free kicks, he won us throw-ins high up the pitch to sort of ease the pressure. So I don't think it was that, but I do think that Torreira has become in the you know four or five games that Arteta has been here a really key part of the midfield. So mm. it's it's going to be a blow if he's out for any significant period of time. And I do think in some ways that contributed to um, you know the lack of control that we failed to exert in in the second period. So um, that was a blow. So let's talk their goal. Um, yeah. Who who do you want to crack the whip on <laughs> with this one? Uh, uh, I think it's Kalasadac, isn't it, who doesn't get out to the wing. I mean, I think mm. that's the most egregious error to me, that they can play this free kick so mm. casually down the line and there's just nobody near the yeah. guy who crosses. Mayor it is, I think. Yeah, that was, that was poor. I don't think the attempt to cross or block the cross was particularly good. Uh, when the ball came into the box, I'm not sure anybody particularly covered themselves in glory. When it came no. to blocking the shot, you know, Lacazette stood watching. Xhaka was not quite turning his back on it. It deflected off Louise. But can I go back a bit? and talk about what came in the build-up to the goal, and that was the fact that we had possession of the ball, that we kicked it out and kicked it long, and the ball came to uh, to Aubameyang, I think it was. I know he's not necessarily... Um, you know, known for being a back-to-goal striker or somebody Classic who can hold the ball up. Yeah. You know, he's not that guy, that's for sure. But I do think throughout this game, we struggled with... Are back to goal. Not just Aubameyang, but but Pepe, Lacazette a bit too. Um, in in that circumstance, I think it was a little bit careless to lose the ball. From there, we conceded the free kick. Lacazette conceded the free kick. I don't have a huge issue with conceding a free kick on the halfway line. You know, we've spoken about this countless times about how we don't yeah. really um, uh, commit those kind of fouls often enough. Maybe we're committing them a little bit too often, given the amount of free kicks that Palace seemed to have on the halfway line. Uh, thankfully, they weren't very good at delivering, uh, apart from this one time. But, you know, that was another part of the goal, which I think... You know, when Arteta looks back on it, when the coaching staff look back on it, they will think, look, that was kind of avoidable because we should have just held on to the ball there. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it was interesting. Arteta, after the game, said he felt we gave too many free kicks away. Whereas I was watching the game thinking, this feels deliberate. You know, especially someone like Lacazette would often come back and just sort of you know, not clatter somebody, but certainly leave a leg in the way if it meant stopping a counter or stopping a move in its tracks. That, for, to me, felt like a strategic thing. Uh, and then Arteta afterwards was like, well, I think they did it a little bit too much. So maybe there's a, a bit of balance required. But no one covered themselves in glory. And it was frustrating because you give a free kick away on the halfway line but effectively, you allow them to advance the free kick about 20 or 30 yards by mm. by not closing down the first pass. Yeah, it's very and simple from Kolasinac, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, who has been, you know, I think he, he's a player who has frustrated me, I have to say, but I think has been better 
under Arteta. Yeah, certainly. You know, um, but those lapses, those moments where, you know, it's two seconds, as Arteta said, if you switch off for two seconds, you concede. And that's really all it was. And it was just a simple, uh, simple uh, matter of concentration and focus and, and things like that. So, yeah, mm-hmm. a frustrating goal to concede, which brings us then to the to the red card. Um, yeah. Any complaints? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, uh, no. It, it, it was one of those... I saw it and I thought, he's got a book in there. He's maybe lucky with that. And, of course, with VAR, you know, the irony of Palace fans chanting against VAR and unveiling <laughs> a banner against VAR and then being the beneficiaries of it in both their fixtures against us. Yeah, really. not for the first time this season because it was uh, the Socrates winner that should have been yeah. at the Emirates, yeah. Um you know that that was uh, pretty remarkable, but yeah, I mean, it, it, to be honest, I think the referee probably should have seen it for what it was in the first instance. It's it's just a bad tackle, and I don't think anybody in football, certainly even Roy Hodgson, speaking about it afterwards, thinks there was any malice on Aubameyang's part. Uh, it's just not a good challenge. No, it's not. I don't think we can... Yeah, I mean, you look and my my marker for this is like, what would I want to happen to an opponent if they carried out that tackle on Public an Arsenal execution player? or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> there have been a few. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, it's that. Like, would I be unhappy if uh, an opponent an opposition player didn't get sent off for, for that tackle. And I would, if that tackle had been on Aubameyang and the guy had only got a yellow card, I'd be fuming. So I think, you know, from that point of view, um, I don't think we can have any complaints. Where the frustration comes in uh, is is the the lack of consistency in in dealing with tackles like this. And, you know, we've seen a number of challenges this season on Arsenal players which have not been punished and incidents where red cards were merited but they weren't given. So, you know, you think about Cresswell on Pepe in the West Ham game, as as clear a red, I think, as you will ever see. And it was only a yellow card, despite the fact that the referee saw it and VAR had a look at it. There was um, the, the one at Bournemouth, a scissors tackle from behind, which, you know, you've seen red cards given for that. Um, so yeah. I think we can be frustrated that uh, those incidents weren't punished more severely, but still accept that Aubameyang deserved his his red card. Um, you know, consistency yeah. among referees is, it's just an age-old problem. It is, and it's one of the big issues with officiating and with VAR is that you have to try and establish a, a consistent bar for what constitutes a clear and obvious error, and that's, mm. that is in itself a, a, a difficult thing to define. I mean, I was surprised just on the subject of VAR that the Palace goal wasn't, uh, reviewed. I mean, maybe it was reviewed, but just in terms of the the, the first pass, looked like it might be offside. But yeah, I'm, I'm sure I, it must have been though, right? Because if yeah, if maybe well, sometimes they tell us, sometimes they don't. I guess. Well, I mean, that's it, you know. But if if it was, you know, if they're going to rule out goals as they have done for a guy's toe or his knee or toe, yeah, whatever exactly. it is being like half an Nitty. inch or yeah, if they're going to do that. I assume they do that for every offside decision, right? 
I assume yeah. so. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe we're wrong, and maybe they pick and choose their moments. But if they're going to disallow goals, uh, and they've done it more than once this season for somebody being a tiny amount offside, I think if the Palace guy was a tiny amount offside, the goal would have been disallowed. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit uh, for integrity, but that's just the way I maybe uh, I think of it. Yeah, what, what I find weird about that is is that uh, they were able to make that decision so quickly and yet say the Aubameyang the red card review took so long uh, you know it's kind of odd it, how mm. many replays do they need to see of that offside versus how many replays do they need to see of well, the challenge yeah. yeah I mean look it, it's the, the the transparency of how the VAR rules are implemented and how the decisions are made yeah. that is I think probably causing some issues with with VAR you know and, and yeah. people's faith in it because we don't know how they're coming to the conclusions that they're coming to. What we know is that the referees themselves are not really involved, you know, because they're not looking at their monitors. Why couldn't the fucking Iniesta-looking ref go look at the monitor himself? Uh, Yeah, I I mean, that's what they did in the World Cup, and that seemed to be pretty effective to me, and it maintains the authority of the official on the field. Mm. The the, the other thing, I, I saw a clip yesterday, actually, I forget what this game was but it was Chelsea Man United at Wembley it might have been an FA Cup match or it might have been a Community Shield and uh, Eden Hazard was through on goal and brought down and anyway the the referees were mic'd and they were able to show how that decision took place you know and and play the audio in and it did provide a lot more clarity in terms of the dialogue between the assistant referee the the video assistant referee the referee himself um, I know the Premier League and FA will be resistant towards doing that, but I do wonder if it would get them out of some of the holes that they, they're they getting into at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Mike Riley um, is particularly keen on that kind of transparency or, or transparency mm. or having to explain himself or the decisions that his officials make because I think if we got, if we got to look behind the curtain, uh, there's a definite fucking Wizard of Oz <laughs> thing going on here, to be honest. Sure. It's just some fucking idiot. Um, yeah, and that's that's the situation with Mike Riley. But look, Aubameyang suspended for three games, and we'll talk maybe in the second half yeah. about what we what we do about that. Arteta said he was pleased with the reaction from the team and the way we played after going down to 10 men. Were you? Uh, I actually was relatively pleased in that I, I kind of expected us to sort of just sit in. You know, again, I've had this kind of conservatism drummed into me by Unai Emery for 18 months. So I keep thinking, right, well, we'll just sit and hold. But what I did like is that, you know, with uh, with Martinelli especially when he came on, I thought was really mm. good in a difficult scenario. And, you know, I, when we could break, we did look to do that. And there was a little bit of ambition to sort of try and win the game, which... I was encouraged by. What did you think? I like the fact that we didn't just go into our shells and we didn't sit yeah. down and there was a front-footedness to the way that we played and, and we pressed and we 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 looked to win second balls and, and to pick the ball up when it broke, uh, you know, in midfield. We didn't just sit back terrified of what the opposition were going to do to us with uh, an extra man. So I think that's, a, you know, that's a positive. Um, Palace really didn't threaten at all. I know no. Socrates had one that came off the line, uh, cleared one off the line, but that was a, a rare foray, um, maybe from a set piece or whatever it might have been. Um, so, yeah, I think there was a, a pleasing element to the response, uh, having gone down to, to 10 men, that 
you know, there was enough confidence in the team and the structure of the team to play that way and to play um, not hugely differently from when we had 11 men. Yeah, and of course, we I mean, we were closest to winning it uh, yeah. with that Nicola Pepe chance. And uh, yeah, you think Lacazette should have scored on the rebound? I think it's a difficult chance. You know, the, the goalkeeper is very close. Um, but I think a Lacazette who is confident and assured in front of goal would have scored that. Like, I, I think I would want my striker to score that, you know? Um, I, I the, the fact that he just blasted it just speaks to me of the lack of confidence that he has at, at this moment in time. You know, because you can't, when the goalkeeper is that close, just blast the ball and expect it to go through the keeper. Um, I, mm. I think you have to be a bit more subtle and a bit more controlled about the way you, you finish that chance. I'm not saying it's, you know, an open goal or, or anything like that, but... I do feel like if Lacazette was um, in in his best form, he probably would have scored that. But he's not. He's really struggling in front of goal at the moment. Um, and and yeah, that will become an issue. I, I think other things he's doing in the game are pretty good. And I liked the way he set Pepe up for the chance. I like the way he set Aubameyang up. Uh, I think he's getting through a lot of work up there. Yeah, yeah, for certainly. sure. Um and, you know, it, it, it's a good shot from Pepe, actually, a really good shot. I thought initially it hit the post clean. It's a really good save, I think, from Gaito's a decent keeper. I think I think it's, it's a tougher chance to me than it looks, the Lacazette one, because I thought he should have scored as well. But when I watched it back, the keeper springs really quick to get in front of him. I think maybe his best chance of scoring is almost not taking the shot on straight away. You know, maybe taking a touch or or looking to lay it back or mm. something because the keeper's right on him. It's, yeah. it's, it's the, tough. But I, Yeah, I know what you mean. I, I just think it's one of those that if he took a touch, it, it'd be another one of those moments where people are going, he's taking too many touches. Yeah, true. You know, true. Um, I, I just think uh, in terms of his finishing... He's going through like a two out of 10 moment in his Arsenal yeah. career right now. When it comes to the rest of his game and how hard he's working and the shift that he's putting in for the team, you know, it's it's a nine out of 10. But when you're a striker and when there's an onus on you to score goals and, you know, that could have been the difference between, uh, you know, uh, one point and three, you know, it's it's understandable that people are going to get a bit frustrated with him. Um, mm. So, look, I get it from that point of view. I do think there are things that he's doing in his game which are, you know, we need at this moment in time. And I think Arteta recognises the fact that that he does give us a bit of a, if not quite a, a focal point up front, a bit of a structure to that front three that the other more mercurial players like Pepe, like Aubameyang, who like to run, who like to dribble, uh, you know, can, can work off. Definitely. And I think that's kind of the main thing Arteta has done is he's given structure to the team and I think some of the most integral players to that have been you know Torreira and and Lacazette because they've just given us kind of centrifugal points almost that we can that we can work off in midfield and attack but yeah he he desperately needs 
I mean, I, I wouldn't even just say he needs a goal. He needs a kind of, he needs a run of goals. He needs to find that confidence in front of goal, that sort of, you know, s- swagger that he he can have when he mm. when he's finishing well. Uh, and he needs it really soon now, obviously, because the the bigger issue, I suppose, I mean, strikers have periods where they, they the goals dry up, they come in and out of form. A lot of strikers are patchy. Um, the bigger issue is we don't have any other players <laughs> who score, really. Yes, that is a problem. And we are going to have a, a question, I think, in part two about, you know, what we do and, and how we cope with, with Aubameyang's absence. I mean, it's not the worst run of games uh, for him to be missing. Sheffield United at home, even without Aubameyang, I know we don't score too many, but it's one of those fixtures where you would think, okay, you know, we should be able to cope. We should be able to cope in a home game, uh, you know, against a, a newly promoted side, albeit one that has beaten us already this season. I, I know, well above us in the table. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they're they're a good side. I'm not not taking anything for granted. Um, but but you know, if you were to pick and choose a fixture, that might be one of the ones that you would you would choose. Chelsea away is a big problem because um, Lacazette doesn't score away. Uh, you know, he 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 has an issue in his game where his goals are far too heavily weighted at home. Uh, I did the stats here uh, a little while ago where, you know, the vast majority of his goals come at home and not enough come away from home. Um, and the Bournemouth FA Cup game, I think he would have been rested for that game anyway. So it's not the worst in the world, but we do have to find a way to cope Without him, like I said, we'll come back to that in in part two because there's definitely there's definitely a question. So, you know, in the overall context of the game, should we be unhappy that we only took a point? You know, I I I, I think we did well enough with the red card. Um, when you're down to ten men, you're away from home uh, and you take a point. I don't suppose you could be too be too unhappy, but I do think that opening half an hour is one over which we should have some regrets because we did not we did not make the most of of what we had in that opening period of the game. Yeah, we didn't turn the screw. And I mean, one thing I think that I overlooked coming into the game is I'd been really encouraged by the Chelsea performance and then the the win against United. Those were both home games, and this is a team with a pretty dismal away record. Mm. And you know, there, there is there is still a lot of work to be done. I mean, I don't, I'm not too disappointed, but I think that's probably couched within the fact that uh, I have half written off the Premier League season. I, I'm not sure how much the individual results matter at this point. Mm. Um, I, I, I bet they matter to Mikel Arteta. I'm sure he wants to finish as high as possible. Um, but it's more about, do I see signs of progress for me at the moment? And there were still, you know, there was enough in that 20 minutes to think, okay, they're, they're at least adhering to some sort of plan. It's mm. concerning that it didn't produce as much as we would have liked, but I, I'm not hugely bothered about the result, to be honest. Um, yeah, well, which is a weird thing to admit, but sure. No, I, yeah. I have to say I am a bit bothered by the result, but I'm not like furiously crazy about it or anything like that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm bothered because I think it was a, a chance for us playing against a team with a lot of injuries to take three points away from home, and I think you know the positives that we 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 can take would have been exacerbated by a win on the road because an away win is something that's been hard to come by and, and they're yeah, rare. So you know, I think in in some ways it is a missed opportunity, but like you, I do see, A, signs of progress, 
I think as well, um, you know, it it is uh, going to take time to get things right. There are going to be ups and downs and fluctuations in form and performances, which are inevitable. Um, you know, so I, it's a question of uh, giving the new man time, which I'm more than mm. prepared to do. And also, I, I do think that over the course of the four or five games that Arteta has managed us, what I like is the fact that we... It's not that we're not stopping the opposition having shots or anything like that, but I don't get the same sense of dread from opposition attacks and from periods when the opposition have more of the ball and are controlling the game than I did when we were managed by Unai Emery, particularly in the last few months of of Emery's time at the club. I feel like the organization, the structure of the team allows us to be more comfortable when the opposition have the ball and it's made us a bit more defensively secure and that for me is something that we can start to build on you know bearing in mind that we also need to you know make make uh, our attack more effective i think the big thing for me in the five games that arteta has been in charge is this i just feel there's a bit more calm in the team that they're not being you know when like the opposition would have a, a shot and then all of a sudden we get turned around and we're like running like school kids all over the pitch we're trying to cope with being pulled from pillar to post mm-hmm. that is not happening and that for me is progress yeah and i think part of the reason it's not happening is that we are slightly improving in in those moments of transition you know we are stopping counterattacks from getting us when we're vulnerable be it by making a foul or by making sure we get back quicker than we have been and I think you see that improvement in maybe our perception of the centre-halves. If you look at David Luiz and Socrates in the last few games, you know, they've looked a lot better, but they're not different players. They're the same guys with some of the same flaws and weaknesses there, but I think they're just better protected and playing mm. within a, a more structured side. And suddenly they look, you know, twice what they were. Um and that's not to say they're perfect or anything like it, but, you know, they, they look significantly more useful to us. And, yeah, yeah I, I think that's really interesting. I mean, you know, we had a, a coach in Unai Emery who was kind of framed as a pragmatist and we thought would come in and improve this defence. Then we we hire a coach who whose philosophy seems to be about keeping the ball and possession and attacking football. And yet he, he has actually improved our defence in mm. doing that, that there's been a kind of benefit a benefit to the back line in being more front-footed. Um, yes. I think we can already see that. Yeah, I mean, that that's always been a part of it, that if you control the game better, if you have more of the ball, uh, you, you obviously uh, decrease the opposition's chances of, of scoring goals. But I just think in general, even when United and, uh, you know, to, to a large extent, Chelsea, I know how that game ended, but those were, those were issues that we could have... Um, they were self-inflicted. The Chelsea wounds, the Chelsea goals were self-inflicted. Let's let's put it like that. But, you know, for all their uh, dominance in that second half, I didn't feel as uh, on edge as I did when teams had that kind of um, possession uh, in the past. So, look, it's ups and downs. Um, I'm... I think, uh, I think there's more good than bad for me in what I'm seeing at this moment in time. So... 
you know, as frustrating as it is to drop a couple of points, we take the positives from the day uh, and build mm. on it. And it, it strikes me that, you know, Arteta is is still learning quite a bit about this team and about this group of players and what he can get from them and how often he can get it. So every game where something happens that he can look to correct it, um, I think we have to look at look at that as, as something that he can learn from and hopefully implement. Yeah, and I think actually kind of my biggest regret about Aubameyang being out for three games is that it means we get to see less of Arteta's plan A, basically, because I've been quite enjoying plan A. And I think the more time it has, the more consistency of selection there is, the better it will get. And now he'll have to mm. kind of make do amend and, and switch things up. So, yeah, I mean, there's he's learned a lot about the squad already, but I think he'll learn a lot more about it in the next three games as we try and cope without our best player. All right. Well, look, uh, unless there's anything else from the game that you want to comment on? we uh, I don't think so. Really. I mean, I think generally... You know, we talked about the red card and the, the the issue with VAR. I thought the officiating wasn't very good on the day. I thought yeah. there were quite a lot of decisions that, um, if, to be honest, in both directions could have been better. Yeah, uh, I mean, was it uh, Orbino posting on Twitter that IU committed seven fouls uh, and didn't get a yellow card? Yeah. Maitland-Niles yeah, yeah, yeah. booked for his first foul. You know, things like that drive you mad, of course. Yeah, but I, I think from the other side, I mean, I think, uh, I think was it Shaka? I saw there was uh, there was a couple of Arsenal players that I couldn't believe what they got away with without getting booked. Shaka was one. Lacazette did get booked, but he made as many fouls as I did. Um, it, it was it was a scrappy affair, and Palace made it that, and that's how they got their point ultimately. But yeah, I, I don't have any more thoughts on it really, other than that. No, actually, I don't. That's it. That's it. You, talk, it yeah. you talked yourself into a corner. I talked there, myself into a corner. I was like, oh, there must be one more. Other than that, oh, no, no. no that no, is no. actually it. Unfortunately, you didn't have the Thierry Henry skills to put it between Danny Mills' legs and get yourself out of the corner again. No, I just stayed in the just corner. stayed in the corner. booted up into the air by my own hubris. <laughs> All right, well, look, we'll take a break. We'll come back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you sent to us on Twitter at GunnerBlog and at Arsblog on the Arsblog Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the Arsblog, and also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. James, uh, seeing as you're just back from your winter break, you must be recharged, refreshed, and dying to get on with the question, so I'll let you go mm-hmm. first. Thank you very much. You're well, welcome. there've been a, a lot of questions about goals and the lack thereof. Mm. Uh, we had this from David Stefanoff on Twitter, who said, "Do you also have the feeling that even with Aubameyang's goals, we are a lot less dangerous in front of goal than we were, example, three or four years ago? Mm. Uh, this is the least scoringest Arsenal I have ever seen, and I've supported the club since late 2006." Uh, Many other questions of that ilk. Why aren't we scoring enough goals? I mean, Andrew, who's at ACAD, said, taking Alba and Lacquer, who hasn't been great anyway, out of the equation, our midfielders and forwards have contributed six goals and nine assists in approximately 130 combined appearances. By contrast, Kevin De Bruyne has seven goals and 14 assists. Right. Do we need patience with Arteta or do we need new signings further forward? Both. Both. <laughs> you know, I think, um, yeah, it's clearly a problem. Goals from midfield are a problem. Our highest scoring midfielder is Joe Willock, who has four. Um, you know, our, our second highest scorer is Gabriel Martinelli with eight. And all of those goals are in the uh, Europa League and, and Carabao Cup, right? Yeah. Um, so in Premier League terms, we definitely have... We definitely have a problem in terms of goal scoring. I think we've got a problem in terms of of creativity. A lot of that was evident in the way we played under Unai Emery. I think it stifled what what creativity we had. You know, there was a... Yeah, we just weren't any kind of cohesive attacking unit. We've done that to death on the podcast. We we all saw the games. We all saw how difficult it was. So I think it's one of those things that Arteta is going to need time to get right. I think the first thing he needed to do, though, was to make the team more defensively secure and organized. And he's done that. I don't think you can build any kind of successful attacking team without some measure of a defensive platform. I just don't think it's possible. Um, So... I'm not saying that's, you know, what he's done and what he's achieved, but I do think his first focus was to try and give us something approximating uh, a group of players at the back who could defend. And I think he's done that. Um, from here, it's about then trying to do more from an attacking point of view. And I think the the talent is there. You know, you look at the players that we have, Aubameyang suspended, obviously, but we've got Lacazette who's a very, very experienced international, well, maybe now former international striker. He hasn't played for France for for quite a while. Nicola Pepe. Uh, We've got Martinelli, who has shown that despite being 18 years of age, if you give him chances, he can finish. Um, Mesut Ozil, uh, you know, on paper, the quality of his his passing is something which we should be able to uh, to harness. But you know, I think in 2019 he had two goals and two assists in the Premier League. So so that's a problem. And we lost players like Iwobi, Mkhitaryan, who whether you like them or not, did chip in quite a bit with with goals. So I think there's a there's a problem in terms of the overall quality of of the players that we have especially in midfield. And I suspect that as we go forward, um, we might look at bringing in a player. Um, I mean, it's, it's easy to say bring in another Kevin De Bruyne, but where where the hell do you get a Kevin De Bruyne? I just think that 
that in the the structure or the, the way that Arteta wants his team to play, I'm not sure that a player like Ozil necessarily fits 100% into it in, in that I think he could be about the best fit that we have at this moment in time. And we've obviously yeah. done more to get out of him or to get more out of him. The space uh, that we've been able to create for him on the pitch is something that I, I you know, I, I think he should thrive in or, or certainly be able to do more with. But in the long term, I think what they will be looking at is a signing um, who's a bit more suited to what Arteta wants. Um, You know, a more modern player. Not a number 10, if you like, but a really attacking eight who Mm. can sit in front of, you know, the the two deeper-lying midfielders. So I think that's that's where we are with that. I think, you know, midfield is a problem. We're not getting enough goals from midfield. I don't know that we solve it with the squad that we have. And I think assigning is, is the only way we can do it. But until then... You know, it's tricky. I mean, I mean, and Ozil's never been a goal scorer, has he? You know, for all his creative prowess, he's never been someone who you could say. I don't think he's ever reached double figures, has he? In an Arsenal um, shirt, so maybe one season, maybe once, 10? maybe once. But it, you know, it, it's not something that's been a consistent thread through his career. I, I think you're right. I think that is where the goals maybe come into this team because when you look at the shape that we're playing now. I kind of feel like you need Torreira or someone like that. And I think you kind of need Shaka or someone like that. You mm. need those kind of deeper midfield players. You know, you've got your Aubameyang, Lacazette, and then Ozil and Pepe. Those, Ozil, Pepe, Lacazette are the guys we need to pick up this slack with what we have available right now. And I was struck actually, you know, looking through all the numbers that Pepe, in terms of open goal uh, open goal, sorry, open play goals and assists right. uh, per 90 minutes is below what both Mkhitaryan and Awobi were offering last season, which, you know, it surprised me, to be honest, because I think I thought of Iwobi as someone who's not particularly productive. So, you know, I think it's fair to expect more from, from mm. Pepe in that regard. Uh, we didn't mention, did we, in part one, he had that moment, didn't he, in the first half where he went through on goal and mm. kind of just uh, a little bit of a heavy touch when he tried to go around Cahill. I mean, it was funny watching him send Cahill up in the air. Like yeah, salmon, yeah, yeah. But um, he, couldn't, he couldn't make the most of it. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's, uh, it's a real concern. And, and we haven't replaced Ramsey's goals, basically, is the long and short of it. Yeah, it? I think so. And, you know, when you think about the team uh, and the way it's set up right now, a player like Ramsey would be ideal. Mm. But again, they're 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 fairly rare. Just to go back to Ozil, 2016-17, he scored 12 goals in all oh, competitions yeah. uh, for Arsenal. So he did get there once. Um, and of course, was that the same season or maybe it was the next season where he had almost the Premier League uh, assists record? But it was something that Arsene Wenger, you know, talked about how he wanted 10 to 15 goals from Ozil because of the quality that he has. And, you know, he's shown that when you, when you give him chances... You know, he, he can finish, you know. Yeah. Um, He's he, not scored this season, I believe. Um, no. From, you know, 40, 15 starts. So, you know, I think we need more from him in that respect because, mm. you know, he's got the technique and we all know that, you know, even if it does mean he scores every goal by hitting it into the ground, set mm. it up over the goalkeeper, <laughs> whatever he needs to do to score. Uh, we need that. And I think also, inevitably, and we had a few questions citing this guy, 
we have to look at the guy who is our second top goal scorer, and that's Gabriel Martinelli. Yes, we did. Uh, Ozil's last goal, by the way, was uh, against Crystal Palace uh, in the 3-2 game. Of course, at the, the At the end of last season. Yeah, we did have questions about Martinelli. Let me see if I can find one here. Um... Mason Hunter, who's at your right, I'm wrong, on Twitter. Um, he says, likelihood of Martinelli being the main beneficiary of Aubameyang's absence. In fact, I wouldn't mind seeing Saka left wing if Kolasinac is fit. Martinelli up top and either Pepe or Reese uh, at right wing. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people wondering, um, should Martinelli be given a, a go in the striker position? Mm-hmm. Um I can see why, because he scored so many goals from there. Um, But I think, given that we have Lacazette, we need to have all our players who are capable of scoring a goal on the field. And I think, let's use Martinelli in the role that Aubameyang's been playing as a kind of, you know, inside forward from the left-hand side. He'll get plenty of opportunities to get in the box, but I think he's also a more natural wide player than Aubameyang. You know, Mm. he's, I think, a better dribbler. Uh, more comfortable probably going back towards his own goal so yeah I, I think he definitely should be coming in to that left wing spot yeah I would I would be more inclined to give him a, a run there in the next two games anyway and then in, in the in the FA Cup game I'd play him up top give him a give him a go up front and you know let Saka have a go at left wing and um, you know you can uh, if not experiment, you can just be... I mean, I think he's going to have to give Lacazette a rest at some point because, you know, the guy uh, is running himself into the ground and looks like he's being run into the ground as well. Um, you know, he's not quite as sharp as you would expect him to be. So I think he is going to have to do that. And maybe, I don't know if we can we can say this um, ahead of time, but Aubameyang has played a lot of minutes for Arsenal mm-hmm. this season. I know he's a very fit guy and everything else, but perhaps, you know, a three-game... Uh, rest for him enforced as it might be uh, could be beneficial um, in the in the longer run yeah possibly that's an interesting way to look at it, especially given that we're you know still involved in two cup competitions that that might sort of determine you know mm. the measure of success that Arteta can achieve in his first season I mean we've both sort of accepted more goals need to come into this team and maybe it's going to happen in the midfield do you have any realistic belief that that's going to happen in in January no no I don't you know I'm I'm beginning to get a little bit anxious that not much is going to happen in January to be honest yeah it's Um, very quiet very quiet it is very quiet we might talk uh, about that now in in a moment but um, if we are making signings I don't see them coming in the the top end of the pitch because when it comes right down to you know the numbers are there so Lacazette Aubameyang Pepe Nelson Saka Martinelli um, you know we have the players who can fill those positions so I think our needs in terms of the squad are, are different. Um, so I don't see those, I don't see those coming from uh, the transfer market. Um, I'm not sure we can get the attacking midfield player we might want to bring in in this window either. So it's about the players that we have stepping up and doing more. And I think when you look at it, Pepe could do more. He's settled now. He should be settled. He's, you know, six months yeah. in England. You know, Robert Perez famously had a better second half of his first season than his first. Um, mm-hmm. Lacazette is capable of much better in front of goal than we're seeing at this moment in time. Mesut Ozil is capable of scoring goals. Martinelli can score goals. Uh, it's about creating the chances for them, though, and that might come back to midfield as well. But 
you know, in the absence of Aubameyang, it's there for somebody to step up and, and be the hero. Yes, true. And you're right about creating chances. It is partly the midfield, but also... Also, I think the fullbacks. you know, I think we need to look at them. They're clearly a really important part of the way Arteta's playing, especially Kolasinac going forward. And, you know, we know his delivery is not at the level of Kieran Tierney's. It can be hit and miss. So when he does get in on those overlaps, you know, we need to try and make the most of those scenarios when, when they do occur. Because, mm. um, I, yeah, I, I feel like you, there's not likely to be any attacking additions. And, in fact, Mikel Arteta even saying that you know, Aubameyang's suspension is not going to change plans for Eddie and Ketia, which no. I think is absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, relying on a guy who's, I think, got one Premier League goal to his name would not be the right thing to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. OK, well, look, we'll we'll, we'll see what happens and how he manages to solve that. It's another curious, uh, interesting part of what Arteta's got to do. Um, a couple of questions on transfers. First one, uh, with Mavropanos now out on loan, well, he's not quite gone yet officially, but he is expected to join Nuremberg on loan this week. Does it increase our chances of getting a centre-half in? There's also some suggestion that, that Mustafi could be on his way to Galatasaray. Mustafi changed his agent in the last few weeks, which suggests to me that there's um, there's some moves or at least uh, an effort on his part to find a solution to, you know, the fact that he's, he's just not playing at Arsenal. Um, you know, he hasn't been included in the squad since the Chelsea game, um, you know, where he, he failed to, to do what he should have done as a defender. Um, you know, we, we all know that Arsenal tried to get rid of him in the summer. So, I mean, if it's a case that we loan out Mavropanos and Mustafi, I think we'd have to at least get one central defender in, uh, whether that's on loan ourselves or, or something else. Yes, I think I think it's the Mustafi one that's decisive, really. I, I, to be honest, I don't think letting Mavropanos go on loan does a vast amount, really. Um, we still have, what, Socrates, Luis... Uh, holding holding, and technically Mustafi so I think if Mustafi goes they'll replace him but I don't think that Mavropanos going will necessarily mean they do what do you what do you think um, yeah I don't think the Mavropanos loan will have any significant impact but if if it's a case that we we loan Mustafi too I think it would be uh, foolish of us not to bring it. It would be oh, a, a dereliction of duty not to have the depth because, you know, there's an injury can happen at any moment and then you're 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 done for. So we do need some depth in, in that position. Um what are your thoughts I mean, on I, go on. Sorry. I was just gonna say I, I don't think they'll they'll let Mustafi go unless they have got somebody yeah, coming in. That seems reasonable. Well, and uh, I think it could be a loan as well mm, from a couple of things that I've heard. Okay. So yeah. What what do you think of the Mavropanos loan is this a loan to give him experience so he can come back and compete or is this sort of the first step as has happened many times in the past of a player who hasn't quite made the grade um, you know going out and not quite shop window but but more more a foot in the departure lounge than than anything else I would imagine the club are quite open-minded about it because ultimately Mavropanos hasn't played a vast amount of football, so it's probably mm. difficult to ascertain quite what his his level might be. Speaking to people at the club, I think the biggest issue for him actually has been injuries. He's yeah. really struggled with his fitness and it's been a huge hindrance to his development. So uh, he's needed this loan for a while, really. 
and I, I hope I hope he goes out and and plays and mm. it will work for Arsenal either way. Either he comes back a better player or that game time and that you know actually having a bit of profile will increase his value. And if mm. if, he, if he's one who falls by the wayside and gets sold. I think we could all probably live with that. Mm. Here's just another quick question on transfers. Uh, It comes from Zach Taze on the Discord. And he says, uh, as you guys have mentioned before, sometimes Arsenal fans can be a bit snobby over signing players from lower Premier League teams. But if you could sign one player in the bottom half of the Premier League, who would it be and why? Good question. The bottom half of the Premier League. um, Can I tell you mine? Yeah, you we're have not quite in it. We're tenth, aren't we? <laughs> oh yes, yeah, are we? Uh, I haven't looked at the table. That tells you. That tells you plenty. Um, I better make sure that this team are actually in the bottom half. They are, of course. Uh, if it were me, and I could take yeah. any player from any one of those teams below us, yeah, Jack Grealish. Yeah, he was in my mind. He was in my mind. I mean, he's he is has been excellent for Aston mm. Villa. He's carried them, to be honest. I mean, I know they're well within the relegation zone but their tactics essentially consist of give it to him um, I mean there's a lot of talk about Man U and maybe even Man City looking at him but that's a really good shout he's you know he's a midfielder who has got a bit of end product to his game mm. he can add goals he can add assists and those um, calf muscles those calf muscles such calves such calves and you don't care that he turned his back on your nation you're fine with that um, oh yeah, yeah. I forgot about that bit. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not that not that worried about stuff like that. To be honest. Good. Uh, who would I pick? Well, for difference, I'm going to do the the, the classic uh, Arsenal pick. The man who's sort of the the Jan and Via of the modern era, uh, player who's sort of forever linked with us without us really knowing if there's much substance mm. to it. And I'd say Decore at Watford. Um, I think. He's playing at the moment in a more advanced role, kind of behind the striker. But what I like about him is he can play a lot of multifunctional roles in midfield. He can play deep or he can play ahead. He can score a goal if Mm. required. And he just has that physicality that I feel like we have missed. You know, he's a a great athlete. He played injured at the weekend. It was fantastic. He's 27, but and people sort of shy away from that. But... I think when Man City signed Fernandinho, he was tw- he was 28 and he's 34 now. So, wow. you know, I, 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 that completely passed me by. I had no idea Fernandinho was that old. Uh, when I found that out, I was like, OK, well, you know, you can function as a central midfielder in the Premier League if you're if you're talented enough. And I, I do think he's he's one of those players who I'm sort of amazed he's not quite been picked up yet, you know, and I, yeah. I think uh, it will happen sooner rather than later. Uh, there are lots of good players in the Premier League, even looking at that bottom half, you know, the money that's come in via television means some some teams have got some really good players. I mean, and when you go up in the top half, you look at players at somewhere like Wolves, for example, uh, there are some great players in the Premier League who, who we'd be very lucky to have. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. Um, I guess if we were looking for a defender, a lot of people would talk about someone like Shane Duffy at Brighton. Just a big, gigantic yeah. centre. I'm not quite sure how um, great he would be uh, on the ball in, in uh, an Arteta team. But, you know, in terms of, in terms yeah. of you know, physical presence uh, at centre half, someone who I mean, can score some goals, we, we, want yeah. to, we, we can get a defender and a goal scorer in one. Uh, if Villa go down, I would actually 
I, I'd be looking not only at Jack Grealish but also Tyrone Mings. I, I just think he's a, a a really promising young defender. How old is he? Seems to have uh, been around for mid twenties now. But twenty six. I mean, twenty six. So okay, not too young. But in the life of a centre half, that's not too bad. Uh, I think he'd give you five good years, and he's left sided, which yeah. is something we could do with. Uh, and look, I mean, when it comes right down to it, you know, at twenty six, Mings can only get better. <laughs> yes, that's true. Do they chant that? And if they don't, if what they, are they doing? Yeah, with their exactly. Life? Exactly. Bring they should in be so ashamed we can do of themselves if they don't. <laughs> uh, all right, your question, I think. Uh, my question. Okay, great. Sorry, yeah. I was uh, I was looking at a picture of uh, Tyrone Mings and I got <laughs> lost in his eyes. Um, uh, I actually had that question lined up about that about just what exactly what we've just done. So let me see what other. Okay, ones do you want me to bang one? Oh out? no, I've got one. Okay, got okay, one. okay. Relax. I've got one. Don't worry. Okay, I, I can. I haven't lost the knack. I can still do this. Forgetting to get look at a question. Yes. <laughs> Joachim Carlson says, "Do you think Liverpool will go and beat in the whole season?" We kind of had this one on the Arscast Extra last week. Um, yeah. You know, it's possible. But everyone cares about my opinion, though, right? Right. Um, well, then, what do you think? Uh, I think they will. I think they will. I don't think they will. Okay. I think they're going to they're gonna lose at some point. They will. They will. They can actually, I think, beat the 49, can't they? Oh, can um, they, yeah? Before the end of the season. Right. I think so. But I mean, yeah, I, it would really, I'd be, I have to be honest, I would be gutted. I know people keep saying things like it doesn't matter, but it does matter to me and it matters that it's sort of special. And I like that we've got that little Yeah, but trophy, like all we know, just do is, all we do is just call them copycats. That's it. Just fucking copycats. I guess. You do something first. We did it. And then you just went and copied it. I mean, pff, come up with an, an original idea there, Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Um, what have you got? What have I got? I've got one from the Discord from 1.76 Acres, mm-hmm. who says, in light of Torreira's injury and in thinking about squad building, how do you approach the concept of depth and redundancy with this team? Should we be looking to have multiple players with similar skill sets for such redundancy as backup, in, uh, backup to Torreira? Or do we need to teach players versatility, as in getting someone like Ginduzi more able to fill in for Lucas uh, and do some of the stuff that he does? So we're not, we're not left in a bind uh, when one specific player goes down. This is asked in the context of not just the January transfer window, but as a question about squad building in general, what's the best way to create this depth slash redundancy? God, that's quite a good question, isn't it? Uh, by which I mean it's quite difficult to answer. Yeah. I, I had a conversation about this with, uh, with someone in football about strikers recently. And we were talking about Spurs and how Harry Kane is now out and the transfer window is obviously open. And they're in a position where they're looking for a second striker. Um, you know, second choice. But it's very, very, very difficult to buy competent backup players, particularly in a prime position like centre-forward. If you look mm. at Spurs, they had, I think, Vincent Janssen, and that didn't work out. They had Fernando Llorente, uh, and that wasn't particularly successful. 
And I think now, you know, what they do and what how they sort of cope best is by using people like Son and Mora through the middle who would ordinarily uh, play wide. Mm. And actually, in this conversation, we were talking about how Arsenal are the only club who've really nailed it in terms of having two top class centre forward. People might dispute that on Lacazette, but I think externally he is really well regarded. Uh, and the way in which they've done that is by having one who sort of is able to play in another role. You know, mm. so you can kind of accommodate them. But it means if one goes down, as as has just happened, we have got a sixty million pound or fifty million pound backup forward. Not many Premier League clubs can say that. Um, True. So how that informs the rest of the squad. I, I think you are looking for people who are more multifunctional. I think the old adage used to be two players for every position, but I don't know. I don't know if that affords you to have like the requisite quality that we'd be looking for and the consistency of quality. I think that if you look at Liverpool as an example in their midfield, they have got a number of multifunctional players. You know, someone like Wijnaldum, Cater, Henderson. Oxlade Chamberlain, they can all play several different roles within central midfield. And I think Gunduzi has that potential at Arsenal. It just needs to be coached and, and developed. So yeah, I, I think my my inclination would be to build a squad of sort of versatile multi-skilled uh, footballers rather than sort of go I've got to have two Terreras. Okay, but is that not really only uh, applicable to midfield? Because maybe you know you can't. Uh, okay, we've seen uh, someone like Callum Chambers, for example, uh, as a central defender play at right back. Um, but in the centre of defence, you need central defenders. At fullback, you need proper fullbacks. There's no question. Mm-hmm. Up front, you need a, a you know, unless you've got a r- ridiculously talented person, you need you need strikers, wide men or wide men, and players who are perhaps a bit more versatile can fit into that, you know. Um, but it's really in, in the centre of midfield, I think, where where this becomes a, a very pressing issue, where the sort of versatility um, required um, lends itself to having those kind of players in the squad. You know, is there not yeah. also the idea that, okay, if your first-choice player gets injured you are going to suffer a little bit in terms of quality because that's just inevitably what happens. You know, your first choice players are your first choice players because they're the best. And, you know, throughout history, when your main striker gets injured, you've got somebody there, but maybe they're not quite as good. You know, same with your goalkeeper. When your your number one goalkeeper gets injured, you've got a backup who's good, but not quite as good. You know, is that just not something you have to cope with? I think so. I think the point you make about that being more viable in midfield is a really good one. I mean, I think there are sort of areas of the pitch where there can be a bit of fluidity, so say in, in central midfield. And I think between playing as a central striker and playing on the wings, you know, there are lots of players who can sort of cover, uh, you know, potentially both those areas or, or both wings in an attacking respect. It's funny how you... You wouldn't necessarily look at right back and go, well, he can also play left back really comfortably. But you might look at a right winger and think he'd be okay on the left wing because those roles are so Mm. diverse and rotational now anyway that versatility is sort of part of it. I think you definitely need, let's be clear, you definitely need two goalkeepers of good quality. You definitely need four fullbacks and you definitely need probably three or four really decent centre-halves, I think. Um, 
the rest is a bit of a, a movable feast. But I think you're right. We can't. I don't think Arsenal, with our resources, can have 22 best players, can we? No, I don't think so. It's just not. It's just not feasible. It's not feasible. And you know, across the front, you know, Martinelli can play on the right. He's played there, and Nelson could play on the left. And Pepe seems very wedded to the right hand side, where yeah. it might be interesting to see what he can do from the left hand side um, mm. from time to time. He doesn't seem. He doesn't seem to to be one of those players who, you know, sometimes the, the wingers switch, you know, after 20, 25 minutes, they'll switch over for like 10 minutes just to sort of confuse the, the defenders. Yeah, it doesn't happen much with him. No, it doesn't seem to. Maybe there's a very good reason for that. So um, He did hit the post, of course, from that yeah, position um, yeah. the other day, but that's unusual, you know. Yeah, I just wonder, is that somewhere he's not really very comfortable or is there, you know, another specific reason why why Arteta and Emery have, you know, never, never tried to use him there? Um, you know, I think... The, the makeup of our midfield is certainly something which needs uh, some attention. I think I'd be very surprised if, you know, much happened in, in this transfer window, but I suspect that there might be, you know, two signings in there in, in the summer which give us a bit more balance and allow us to cope a bit more when, you know, Torreira, who is ostensibly our only natural defensive midfielder, mm-hmm. um, you know, is is out. Um, and hopefully, we don't know how long he's going to be out, but hopefully he's not going to be out for, for too long. Yeah, I, it's, uh, I think you're right. Two out, uh, sorry, two in and, and maybe one out. I still mm. am not convinced if that Granite Xhaka's sort of... Uh, a long-term mm. future is necessarily here, but we shall see. Um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's I, what I do like about what Arsenal are doing this season, and I know it's cost us at times, but I do like that a lot of these squad positions are filled by younger players. I mean, our bench at Crystal Palace was incredibly youthful, wasn't it? Yes, or you know, to put it another way, inexperienced or lacking in in yeah. You know, I'm not going to say lacking in quality because you know these are these are good young players, but if you're Mikel Arteta and you're turning around and you're looking at your bench and thinking, well, how do I who do I put on to change this game for me or to give me something that that I don't have? You know, when you look at City, and I know they're not quite the example we should be using, but, you know, City could bring on from the bench Mares, Bernardo Silva. Um, sure. You know, uh, really, uh, Gabriel, Gabriel Jesus. Jesus you know, yeah. you know. So I know our resources aren't anywhere close to that, but but those are players who can genuinely change a game for you if you need to, or players who, if you need to, um, maybe uh, try and make a game safer in the final stages. You know, to bring on guys of that quality against tiring legs um, can, can make a real difference. So I think, you know, part of the squad building has got to be to add some more uh, to m- some more experience. And maybe maybe these young players next season will be better and more, more capable of producing. But right now, you know, it's very difficult for them because they're in the, the nascent stages of their careers. Well, yeah, some will and some won't is the reality, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I think even letting... Squad players like Mkhitaryan or Iwobi, who, to be fair, were more than squad players last season, go. I think it has hurt us, but I do wonder, especially given that you know the league season is kind of you know almost uh, not dead rubber, but it's kind of inconsequential to some extent where we finish if we're outside the European places. I think we might look back and look at the game time we were able to grant to 
Saka or Nelson or Martinelli. And I think there might be a, a long-term benefit that's drawn from that. You know, they won't mm. all succeed. They won't all flourish. And maybe even some of those players, Joe Willock, maybe they'll go out on loan next season. I don't think that's, you know, beyond the realms of possibility. But I do think that in the long run, we will reap some dividends from 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 the fact that we've had to use them. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Anyway, even if it's financial, to be honest, if we yeah. sell them, you know, they'll have more value. All right, you got a question? Uh, you would think. You would you? think. Um, okay. Yes, let's have this one from Fred at RLF eighty six on Twitter, and Fred says, "Should we be inverted commas ruthless with injured players like Bellerin and Holding and sell them?" It might affect their prices, but if they get an injury relapse, it's at another club. Um, okay, I've got a question here as well. I was going to ask you one about um, uh, Bellerin, and it's from Gunnar underscore DS. Who's that? Gunnar, yeah. score, uh, Gunnar underscore DS. How good can Bellerin be under Arteta, or do you think it's a lost cause and we should cash in on him in the summer? Um, should we be ruthless with players who have suffered a really serious traumatic injury and who are working hard every day to come back to the level that they want to be at, that the club wants to be at, uh, wants them to be at? You know, I think it's very, very harsh to suggest that we should sell either of them. Is it OK to have some concerns about how the injuries might affect them? Absolutely. But the the idea that we should just say, well, you've had a cruciate ligament injury, you might have a relapse, you might, you know, we're going to sell you now. I, I don't think as well, a football so club. Selling yeah. someone with a, without, without yeah. a cruciate ligament. Well, yeah, but I mean, I just think, you know, how how um, how does that make you look as a club if you treat players like that? You know, I was doing my best for the club. I played a lot of games and due to fatigue and wear and tear and, and you know, maybe not getting enough rest, um, you know, and it's been suggested to me that, you know, a couple of the, the cruciates that we, we suffered were because players were maybe not quite given the rest that they should have been. You know, we then throw them out because of that, that doesn't seem in any way right, and it's not the right way to treat uh, professional sports people. It's not the right way to treat a human being. You know, they were doing their job. They got injured wearing the shirt. You know, we have a duty of care to them to to help them get back to their best. And if they do, then it's to our benefit because we've got two good players. Um, mm. So I think it's reasonable to have some concerns about players coming back from cruciate ligament injuries, but I don't think there's any justification for being ruthless, if you like, uh, in inverted commas, uh, because of because of the injuries that they've suffered. This is a question that I had meant to ask earlier and forgot from Ollie Tucker on Twitter. And Ollie says, given that we went into the season with no fit right backs and Ainsley Maitland-Niles being tasked to fill in there with Chambers as cover, are you surprised now Chambers is out and Bellerin is struggling that we're not being linked with any potential incomings in that position? No, I'm not surprised because, you know, Maitland-Niles has shown that um, despite his reluctance to play in that position, he can do it and he can do it very well. And I thought he was great on Saturday against uh, Zaha, who, as we yeah, know, is a, actually. You know who, who's a really difficult player to play against. Um, I know Palace weren't 
weren't really at it on the day, but Zaha as an individual player can create moments and 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 cause you danger, as we've seen many times in the past. And I thought Maitland-Niles has done very well. So, you know, if he's doing well there and has made progress in that position and Bellerin is on the way back, you know, he, he's, he's got a hamstring strain. Somebody said to me on, you know, uh, left a comment the other day on Arsblog News going, well, that's it for Bellerin. We should get rid of him. And I'm going like, hang on a minute. He's got a hamstring strain, not a terminal illness, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be realistic about how long it takes players to come back from injury. And I think part of part of the frustration with, let's say, Bellerin and, and Holding, um, you know, and they're, they're coming back from injury, is the fact that, when somebody gets a cruciate knee ligament injury, they are they're, the the recovery period is posted as like six to nine months. It'll be six to nine months before they're back in action. And I think that's too short. I think it's too short. I think it sets an unrealistic expectation for when that player is going to be um, fit and ready for us again. Because mm-hmm. we've seen that generally, it's probably somewhere between 12 and... 16 months before a player is really back to full fitness because it's six to nine months to recover and recuperate and get back to full training. Then you've got to get over the psychological aspect of that injury, which is quite um, quite intense. You've got to learn to trust your body again in terms of running, sprinting, twisting, turning, going into tackles. You've got to get match fit. You've got to get match sharp. You've got to find your form again. You know, so I think we have to be more realistic about what to expect and when to expect a player who's coming back from injury to be ready to to produce for us on the pitch the way that they were before the injury. You know, so I think that there's an element of of the reporting of injuries or the the time frame or the timescale that's put on it. Like six to nine months, yeah, maybe you're back in full training, but you're still another four, five, six months away from being, you know, uh, uh, the player you were. So yeah, I, I, even if you even if you are making appearances here and there in the first team, as, as Bellerin did, and just to go back to the question on how I think he'll do under Arteta, I think he's really well suited to to what Arteta's trying to do with this mm. team, and I think if if he's at his best. He will really flourish within it, um, but I think in the meantime, Ainsley Maitland-Niles deserves real credit because you know he has knuckled down and, and made something of that position where he looked very uncomfortable not long ago, and I thought he was excellent against Zaha. You know, Zaha is a physical specimen. I mean, he's he's quick and strong, and Maitland-Niles matched him there on every count. But his his trickery and his movement, Maitland-Niles, it helped that he had Mikel Arteta throughout the first half about you know 10 yards away from him for most of the half yeah. shouting at him constantly nothing wrong with that but, though is there no no I mean he coached him through that first half and uh, you know he gets that every game half the game he's got Arteta in his ear and I think he's probably benefiting from that <laughs> did you was there where was that story was it on uh, the athletic about Traore Adama Traore who, when he was playing for Middlesbrough, I think it was Tony Pulis who was the manager, Pulis would play him on whichever side the dugout was. Yeah. So in the first half, he'd play yeah, on the yeah. left and he'd just shout at him and coach him through the game. And then for the second half, he'd play him on the other side so he could stay on the, the same side of the pitch. Some players mm-hmm. need that. And I don't think there's, you know, I think Malon Niles has, has done very well. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, there's competition there now. You know, I don't think it's, it's a... Uh, 
a case that Bellerin walks straight back in no, uh, to the team without on. without having to really fight for his place, and I think that's good. I think that's a good thing. I, I think the, the 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 ceiling that Bellerin has as a right back is probably a little bit higher than Maitland Niles. I just you know um, there's a reason why he was very highly coveted and why Man City wanted him and Guardiola wanted him and you know his his um, agent I think was Guardiola's brother or could still be so. You know, there's a reason why, but, you know, he's got a way to go. But, you know, if Maitland-Niles making progress in that position allows Bellerin to sort of ease himself back into action, then I think that can be a, a good thing for us, a good thing for Hector. So, yeah, certainly. And, uh, yeah, I, I, hope, I hope we see it soon. You know, I, I think Hector, I think to a certain extent we might have forgotten how good he can be. Yeah. And, uh yeah, he can be great. Well, look, at, yeah, I think that's it. There's a sort of, if not quite out of sight, out of mind element to it. It's a sort of out of sight, well, let's dispense with that thing and get a new thing in because the new thing is is bound to be better. I mean, it wasn't long ago people were saying that, you know, Maitland-Niles um, wasn't good enough to play it right back. And there were performances where, you know, he was exposed there. But, you know, he's showing that... Um, you know, he can he can do a job and he can do a good job there. And I think with Holding as well, you know, his performance against um, Leeds in the FA Cup was, was poor. But mm. we have to look at the context. You have to look at the context of it. Like, just because he played four or five bad passes doesn't mean he's turned into a bad footballer overnight. No. Could he just be not. a guy who's been out for the best part of a year and you know, is extremely rusty and on top of being extremely rusty, had one of those nights where nothing goes for you on the football pitch, which, you know, happens to everybody. So, mm. you know, I, I think, you know, there's a there's a tendency to look at what's happening now and assume that that's representative of the overall picture when it's it's not always the case. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And uh, as for Rob Holding, I mean... You know, Mavropanos going and potentially Mustafi going might see him nudged up the pecking order. So we'll see. It's it's been a weird season for him, you know, because of the injury. Yeah, yeah, it surely has. Um, okay, I think I've. Oh, maybe I've got one more. Do I? It's probably about transfers. Okay, yeah, it's from Manic Ben. Ben, who is Manic? At Ben, who is Manic? Do okay. you get frustrated with how the club is during transfer windows? We need help on the field now, but they always wait until the closing days of a window to do anything. Where is the proactive attitude? Like Liverpool have strengthened a record-breaking squad. Um, yes, they did business before the window was technically open, didn't they? I mm. mean. I think there was a release clause involved in that deal, which makes it a little bit more straightforward. But yeah, it was telling Arteta has sort of already trotted out the line about, well, things pick up in the last week of the window. I mean, he learned from the best, I guess, in playing under Arsene Wenger, who used that line more mm. than once. Uh, I, I think it is true, though, particularly in January, it's always quite cagey until the final 10 days or so. And I do think Arsenal are on the lookout for players and I think if there are appropriate deals they can do they'll do them but also they probably have one eye on the summer and I think you know I look at last season and I really think it hurt Arsenal enormously mm. to not strengthen in the January transfer window sufficiently um, but that's because they were in a position where they were contenders for the top four. When I look at it this year, they're obviously not. And while there are cup competitions to play for, um, 
maybe the imperative isn't quite so significant to, to go and do that business. But uh, do I get frustrated? Yes, I do, because I'm a fan like everybody else. But I, I don't believe they're not trying. Let's put it like that. Right. Do you feel it's maybe not quite as pressing, given the fact that we, we sort of have numbers there now? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the Shaka thing changed things. You know, what I was told just on the eve of the transfer window practically was that he was gone and he absolutely needed replacing. And if it took uh, a swap deal or something like that to make sure they got somebody in Mm. for Shaka, then they would have done it. Um, Given that he is staying, I think that has taken that the priority is lower, you know, on a central midfielder. But a left-sided centre-half or a centre-half of some description is still on that list. And uh, and I think what happened to Chambers obviously bumps that up, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. What, what do you feel about it? Do you feel... I feel like, you know, when a new manager comes in, I think he needs some sort of visible backing from yeah. the club. And... Nobody can look at what we've got in the centre of defence and nobody can look at what we've got uh, in the centre of midfield and make a good case for us to do nothing. Mm. So I accept that January's difficult. Um, summer is the best time to do business. You've got more options. But I think in the very short term, we should be learning the lesson of last January. And the lesson of last January, you know, was the very first... Um, maybe the first sign that the director of football, the head of football, isn't quite what we would want him to be. Um, so I think if there's some, not reparation to be made, but if there's some uh, rehabilitation of Raul Senyahi's reputation, uh, if we don't sign anybody in January and um, results suffer because of that yeah he's he's making a rod for his own back which he kind of did you know with the whole Emery stuff as well but basically the team needs reinforcement Arteta needs uh, something uh, to boost his squad he deserves that as a new manager coming into a club and it's up to those guys to to make it happen so I, I you know it's Arsenal who the fuck knows but I would be very frustrated if that wasn't the case um, between now and when the window closes. Yeah, I think that's the point, isn't it? Arteta kind of warrants it as an endorsement, as a show of faith. Mm. Uh, and I think given the start he's made, you know, and, and the fact that it, performances have been encouraging, but there are still clearly problematic areas within the squad, I, I do think it it should be addressed. So. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yep, fingers crossed. All right. Well, we have got... uh, When is Sheffield United game? Saturday. Saturday. Wow, another one. Another game on Saturday. I know. Saturday, three o'clock. Saturday, three o'clock. What the shit? Um, Okay, well, look, that's something we can look forward to a bit later in the week. And, of course, on the Arsecast on Friday. Um, We will leave it there for this week. Don't forget, you can give us a rating on iTunes. You can sign up and become an Arseblog member on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash Arseblog. We've got a brand new episode of My Arse, uh, the podcast in which we talk to an Arsenal fan about their life and times. That's uh, BBC Five Lives. 
uh, Nick Bright that's coming up this week and he he goes along with uh, the likes of Bernard Butler Mark Strong and many others uh, who've told us their Arsenal supporting story so patreon.com forward slash arsblog if you'd like a slice of that and we'll catch you on the next one bye bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.